Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Meta, a podcast about podcasts. My name is Peter Wells, and today I'm joined by uh, Fiona Reynolds, who has a very fascinating podcast. I've only heard a couple of grabs so far, but I love the concept. It is something that I've worried about many times when when the media decides that you are the story of the day and you are the person who is the character of the day that they're focusing on, uh, what that does to your life. A young mother sets up camp with her family. A ski instructor drifts off to sleep beside his wife. A miner clocks on for a night shift underground. These ordinary Australians were about to face extraordinary events that would be devastatingly traumatic and highly newsworthy. A wall of mud and water buried two ski lodges shortly. A rockfall has been reported at the Beaconsfield mine. Not one anticipated danger and disaster, expected ongoing media and public attention, or imagined becoming an accidental celebrity. So, Fiona, um, tell me about the show and, and, and the idea behind it. Hi, Peter. The show really came from a thesis that I did as academic research while I was working as a um, media executive. Um, I was director of um, the, at the ABC. And um, when I finished uh, in that position and decided to stay home, get off the road with my family, I thought I'd better finish this PhD And um, the idea sprang from really over my journalistic career over 30 years, I had uh, reported on the Threadbow landslide. I had met Bruce and Denise Morecambe, whose son Daniel disappeared um, shortly after uh, his abduction while I worked for the Queensland Police Minister. And when I moved uh, back to Tasmania, um, in 2007, I reported on the first anniversary of the Beaconsfield Rockfall. And in between, I had seen many, many people throughout the, you know, um, that time uh, suddenly go from being anonymous to an overnight headline. And their lives were then poured over. Their personal lives became public. And I'd started to wonder whether these people had anything in common, whether there were any similarities um, and how their experiences may have differed. And so that's why I embarked on the research because I just felt like I had this nagging question that I had to answer. And when I had completed the PhD, I um, was at home wondering what I was going to do next because I'd thrown away this um, this great job, you know, to, to uh, as an executive to stay home, uh, finish the PhD, and then went, what do I do now? And COVID hit and... I had the audio recordings and I thought 
really this is something that people should hear. Mm -hmm. And there's no more powerful medium really than um, audio um, and when you hear their voices and them telling them those stories, it resonates. So I thought I'll go back to brushing off broadcast skills that I hadn't used for over 10 years and I would learn about something that I had never um, actually worked in and that was creating a podcast. And I was very fortunate to be linked up with some real professionals in this space who guided me through the process. So I, yeah, brushed off the vocal cords, <laughs> got out the um, the storytelling um, again, and um, and that's produced this, um, resulted in this podcast. We'll get to uh, the, the people that you interviewed, because um, just even saying their names out loud uh, immediately evokes images and and their story. But before we do that, I'm, I'm curious as to who are the people that helped you uh, create this? Well, I spoke with a friend and said, um, I, I don't know where to start with a podcast in the commercial space because my last role was with the ABC and um, this friend said, oh, you need to speak with um, Paula Donovan who had... Um, who was an investigative reporter for Channel 7 and she'd been involved in um, in a couple of podcasts, most notably as well, Pendulum. Uh, and I rang Paula and just basically put in a cold call. <laughs> Hi, Paula, you don't really know me, but uh, I want to create a podcast. We met up and when I, I went to meet her, she brought to the table Sally Eels, uh, who had been instrumental in the podcast The Lady Vanishes, and uh, Mark Wright, who's an audio editor who had also worked on both of those projects, Pendulum, Lady Vanishes and others. And they were incredibly generous in basically giving me what I would call the playbook. Right, you need a distributor, we'll link you up with um, with a distributor. You'll need a lawyer, um, you know, to assist you in this process. You know, here's the audio editor, Mark. Um, we can basically talk you through um, the process. And I said to them, you know, what's in it for you? <laughs> you know? And they said, well, look, we we had to learn all of this and we're really happy to pass this on. And I've got to tell you that the entire way through, they have just been supportive, cheering me on. And I think that I have found this fantastic community in podcasting that I didn't even realise was there. You know, as an independent person, you're used to working in a work environment where you're surrounded by a team. Mm. And I found a team as an, as an independent person and it's made the, the road a lot easier and a lot less lonely. That's, that's incredible. Uh, how do you find a team like that? I mean, <laughs> is, is, is this a service we can tap into? <laughs> Look, um, I even to the point where I, I didn't have a microphone at all <laughs> and I've got a friend in Launceston, Sue Bell, who said to me, oh, I've got a great podcast microphone, I'll loan that to you. Uh, she brought it around, she set it up in my daughter's bedroom for me to do the voiceovers and um, I, I think it was Sue who called me the accidental podcaster mm -hmm. because, you know, being in the garden wondering what the hell I was going to do next, uh, you know, turns into I might do a podcast but I don't know where to start, um, leads to this community of people who surrounded me um, and and helped me through. And so I do actually genuinely feel like I've stumbled into this and it's been um, a great joy and, and I, I feel that after you know, 10 years out of content making, it's oh, given me something back in my soul, which is once you're a journalist, uh, you know, from the age of 17, it, it's ingrained. And I feel like I found uh, that storytelling joy back again. 
Well, that's great. Um, and, and, and I can completely understand why people would want to uh, attach themselves to this project because, like I said, it, it, I, I get a lot of pictures every week and, and this one really stood out to me as, um, as just such a fascinating story. It, it, it speaks to, I mean, obviously, as someone in the media, vaguely, I, I do, um, I, I worry about kind of uh, the media's impact on regular people's lives uh, when when things like this happen. Um, so let's ta- start talking about some of the guests. Um, I, I can see the, the, the name that most people around the world would know is Lindy Chamberlain. Yes. Um, if there were a hierarchy of accidental celebrities um, in Australia, Lindy Chamberlain Creighton would be absolutely at the top of the list, you know, 40 years after Azaria disappeared. Um, the, the term accidental celebrity was actually coined by three Australian academics, Graham Turner, Francis Bonner and David Marshall, and it, it was used to describe people who, um, through a high-profile news event, uh, become public figures and their personal lives, once their personal lives become um, well-known as opposed to a professional achievement, um, then they're an accidental celebrity. And that's exactly what uh, happened with Lindy. And I think people really believe that they they know her story so well. Mm. I was interested to see whether people felt there was something new to learn or, or not. I can assure you that um, Lindy uh, agreed to participate in my academic study because she said she saw the list of questions and thought, I really actually haven't been asked these before because the media rarely reports on the media. Mm. And people haven't really asked me what it's like to be a public figure when I feel like an ordinary person. To have that, as she says, you know, taken away from her is, um, you know, her privacy and her anonymity is a nuisance. So um, I was thrilled when Lindy agreed to be part of that. And then she's just been from the get-go so supportive right through into the podcast series. And I do think that people will learn actually quite a bit um, more about Lindy's experience. They know about the event. They don't know what it's like to be in the spotlight. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've listened to uh, one of the audio grabs of Lindy that you sent me, and um, it's it's fascinating to hear her become almost a, a media commentator um, because she can see, uh, she says that, you know, I, I can see that person is about to go through what I went through. And that's um, sort of almost surprised me <laughs> too, is that I reflected on it and thought, wow, she knows so much about how the media operates and then thought, of course she knows so much about how the media operates. She's been in it for 40 years. Mm. There would be very, there would be nothing probably that Lindy doesn't know, hasn't learned about spoiler stories and deals that are done and and she's actually learned, you know, taught me um, quite a bit along the way, I've got to say, um, from her perspective. I, I She read the the thesis. She read the script um, both for the podcast series forensically. And uh, I said to her, oh, it's like um, it's like having your, your fingernails pulled out but sort of enjoying it because <laughs> she'd say, no, no, it's sort of more like this. And she was, um, she is incredibly insightful. And her observation is that when you know that you can, that somebody reaches out to you, you know what they're going through, she said, and they ask you for help. You help them because you know what hell it is. Mm. So does that mean that Lindy Chamberlain is actually getting calls from someone like a Stuart Diver saying, what on earth is happening to me? Or 
Like, well, are, are these conversations actually happening? They do happen. Um, they happen between um, the different people when they are particularly, I think, pointed in the direction of somebody else uh, who's come before them by, I think, people like emergency services. Um, for instance, Stuart Diver was asked to uh, reach out and speak with Todd Russell because they, the emergency services said, look, we just don't know that he's aware of really um, what to expect coming mm. up. Um, but equally, the media does that too. So, you know, if an event happens, we will often go back to somebody who's been through it before and say, oh, what do you think that they're experiencing? What do you think is in store for them? Not about the media experience, just about the survival, etc. So James Scott was asked to comment on Stuart Diver and James says, I regret that now because how would I know what it was like for Stuart Diver to be under, you know, un, under a uh, landslide for 65 hours? I was in Nepal for 43 days. It wasn't the same experience. Todd Russell has been asked numerous times by media to comment on mining disasters. And he said uh, he did that a couple of times and then said, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore because every mining disaster is different. They have a different outcome and I really don't want to be a commentator in that space. But to go back to your question about Lindy... Yeah, she said that she is approached by people who say, please, can you give me some advice? And she will help them. But she said what she won't do is insert herself in somebody else's trauma. So Lindy doesn't go around, you know, tapping people on the shoulder saying, hey, I see that you're in the news, can I help? That's not what she does. But if she's approached, she'll help. That's amazing. You would imagine that there's support for people going through something like this that emergency services would provide. But what can you do? Uh, you know, there, there is such a very tiny amount of people who would ever experience the full picture of suddenly becoming a celebrity when they have no, you know, no, no other reason to be one apart from something incredible happening to them. And there's a number of ingredients that go into that because, as you know, Andy Warhol's famously said that people experience 15 minutes of fame. And for most people, that's what happens. We see trauma every week become a news headline. And most of those people um, have 15 minutes uh, in the spotlight and they disappear again. But there are some uh, where the coverage was so blanket, so sustained ongoing and deep nationally and even internationally that we get to feel as audiences that we know them mm. and we were curious about what happens to them next. And then the media pops it in their diary for a check-in with them in, on the anniversary of the Rockfall and see how they're going now and that generates another story. And when they participate that in that, that keeps the coverage going and they stay in the spotlight. So in Lindy's case, for instance, 40 years, and she doesn't look like what she looked like 40 years ago. We all know what Lindy Chamberlain looked like because we've watched her age and change over the years. Mm. And I think it's that kind of repetition. They all recognise that they participated in coverage and they contributed to their profile. Mm -hmm. Whether they feel they actually had a choice in that or not uh, is debatable. Some actively um, sought the media. Uh, the Morecambe certainly did. Uh, they say that if Daniel's body had been found um, within the first two days, they would never have done any media um, 
interviews, but they were advised to reach out to the media because the media was the best avenue of getting public attention to try and help find him. And ultimately they believe on the positive side that it is the media that helped with police and the public in solving um, his crime, the, the, um, the murder of, um, of Daniel. Mm. And Rosie Batty, you know, nobody expected uh, in the media contingent that Rosie would actually walk out and talk to the media. Now, she says she intended um, to go out and say, please respect my privacy, but when they said, would you like to comment, she did. And she spoke and everybody was silent and they couldn't believe that this was the mother of Luke Batty who'd been murdered by his father speaking to them on her street. And so clearly, uh, and then that led to invitations to speak again about family violence that she had raised there. And she, it really became, one interview became two, became three, became four, and it grew from there. And she became, uh, you know, the, the face of family violence. Yeah, I mean, her her story is a really interesting one because, like you say, she she went from being a victim to an advocate, and and part of that was almost embracing the media to an ex- to an extent um, to make that happen. What about the people who find themselves with fictionalized accounts of their story coming out? How, what were the comments that someone like a Lindy or a Stuart Diver said about? being betray- uh, portrayed by Meryl Streep or having, you know, the worst moment of your life turning, turned into uh, an entertaining miniseries. Uh, that, that, I, I can't imagine what that experience must be like. Well, I think from the, the beginning, there is the general media representation of people. So, you know, there's a couple of um, things there. First of all, it's, it's their interactions with the media and there's quite a lot of discussion about that, about the the death knocks, the stakeouts, the you know the various aspects that that go into that, the potential crossing of the line of, of ethical behaviour, etc. In order to try to get the story, they talk about that, but they also then talk about okay, how was I actually portrayed in the media or represented in the media? And they all feel that it doesn't necessarily align with how they feel about themselves. So mm. their self-image doesn't nece- isn't necessarily the same as what their public image is. In the case of Stuart Diver, he feels that uh, he was, from the beginning, uh, lifted, elevated to being this hero mm. and that forever people will feel that he is this uh, hero. And he said, I'm, I'm not that person. I am, I cry. I didn't cry on camera and he takes responsibility for the fact that he chose not to and he chose not to cry because he felt that um, if he, you know, there were all of these people who had died and their families and if they saw him crying, he would actually survived. So he thought the respond, you know, the right thing to do is to not cry. But then he was portrayed as either being hard and mm. too tough or the hero who was larger than life, stronger. And then, of course, um, that's then exacerbated by having a miniseries or television documentaries or films done about you is it gets reinforced. So in some respects they do become a bit fictionalised and almost like um, characters in a, in a drama. Mm. And that's a very strange thing. So you know, in Lindy's case... Uh, 
She said Meryl Streep had watched an awful lot of interviews about her, everything that she could lay her hands on. And when she actually met Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep talked with her for about 15 minutes and said was the effect of, damn, I have to go back to the drawing board because you're nothing like what I thought you were. You are so much more complex. Mm. You laugh and you cry and I thought you were this particular person and now I'm going to have to try and get, you know, deeper. And that's what they all say is I'm not black or white. I'm not... You know, um, you know, a hero or a villain. I'm not, you know, a victim or necessarily just, you know, a survivor. I am a complex human being who's been through an experience. Yeah, and that seems to be uh, the the issue of the media is it, it's not really good at telling complex stories, especially in thirty second grabs. And so, what? ends up happening in, in in that place of of telling a um a multifaceted character with various motivations instead you generally most of these survivors get you know placed in two buckets there's the um the saint and the hero bucket that clearly no human being can live up to or there is the um you weren't emotional enough bucket why you know you you experience this tra- trauma and regardless of whether you're still in shock or whatever it is that, that, or, you know, Stuart Diver deciding that he didn't have the right to be emotional and therefore changed the way he, he approached the media. Um, yeah. Then you end up with, they're the two characters you can play in this situation. And sometimes they play both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depending on what the story is or what the, the, um, the angle to the, the coverage is. Um, you know, that leads then into them really um, having to contemplate how they're seen publicly. Now, they all recognise that the public also generally wants that sort of persona. So why is the public, you know, curious about people who have been through trauma and survived it? We're curious about um, survival and struggle and adversity and how on earth did somebody endure 65 hours, you know, underground? How did somebody endure 43 days lost in the Himalayas? We want to know how somebody does that. Then we get fascinated too with with um, the strength of the human spirit and um, that, you know, causes us to, to want to know a little bit more about the person, the individual, what makes them tick. Once you're then in that space and you are this public figure, they, every one of them, has worried about how then people perceive them when they go out in public. They try to go along with their lives and just try to lead ordinary lives again. But um, the Morecams talk about how they can't, they don't feel like they can go to the supermarket and dump their trolley next to their car. They have to go back and put it back in the bay because otherwise, Somebody's going to say that was the Morcams. They did the they did the wrong thing, or um, Lindy goes to the uh, doctor's surgery and an old magazine sitting there and she's in it. <laughs> and she goes, uh, "I just tried to bury that underneath the pile." Um, Stuart Diver still works at Threadbow, and he'll walk along and he said, and he'll see people and they'll go, "Are you are you Stuart Diver?" Well. Yes, I've got Stuart Diver on my name tag and I'm a Threadbow. He said, I, don't, I sometimes wonder how many Stuart Divers do they think are in Threadbow? <laughs> but that is a feeling then of, of what if I do something wrong? You know, what if um, I'm seen to not be perfect? I'm 
um, perceived by people to not be what they thought that I was. And Todd Russell in particular has, he says he he doesn't really care that much about what people think of him, but at the same time he says I'm, I'm concerned that um, people, if I do the wrong thing or I'm seen to be doing the wrong thing, that these days with mobile phones and social media somebody will capture that and I'll be like the footballer who ends up, you know, a viral star for doing something wrong. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And um, did any of them talk about any kind of therapy or any kind of, I don't know, CBT or acceptance therapy or whatever that that actually helped them get past this this idea that the rest of the world is judging them and they need to live up to unrealistic expectations? Not about that specifically, but um, they're quite open um, about, for instance, Stuart Diver talks very openly about having um, worked with a psychologist, you know, for um, quite some time after the the um, landslide to try to comprehend what had happened and how he was going to um, continue on after that. Todd Russell talks about how, you know, the mental effects of, of the rockfall were um, just as bad, really, uh, if not worse, than the physical effects of it. Um, for the most part, um, they describe themselves, most of them, as survivors, um, not victims, and they don't want self-pity, and Rosie's very clear on that. I don't want people to pity me, and I don't have self-pity. Um, I've been somebody who's been through an experience, I'm on a journey uh, and I just need to keep going. Um, the Morecams really have difficulty with people coming up and saying and, and giving them a lot of condolences because um, it puts them back in, in the space that they were in before. Um, most of them, would they're quite happy though, generally for people uh, by and large to recognise them in, in a positive way. So not in a pitying way, but in a, hey, you're... Rosie Batty, aren't you? And she said, and I'm delighted if people actually are excited to see me rather than feeling like they need to go and hide because how would you talk with somebody who's lost their son in such dreadful circumstances? And what were some of the universal themes that kind of came through for you? Um, you know, I, I've, I've never been lost on the Himalayas, but I've done things that in my time I've looked back and regretted and or I felt the, you know, the social stigma of... of um, doing something wrong at times that I f- that feels like you know the very tiniest whiff of what some people could be going through in this situation. Are you able to uh, do? Do you reflect on the the kind of the universal themes um, that you're you're hearing? Um, I did as a part of um, my thesis work in this podcast series though I have very much focused on letting them tell their story of their media and public attention and the experience and and what that was like so that's really been the focus for each one of them but I think if you listen to the series 
you will, um, the diff- all the different episodes, you'll hear the themes come through. It's really clear about how uh, they were approached and pursued and um, that is is quite a common theme. It's it's also about how their stories were told, how they were represented. Interestingly enough, I think I had to personally confront some of those issues of, of having been a journalist and, and, you know, my past practices, which I like to think uh, my humanity was intact uh, and that I behaved, you know, ethically, but I also have had to confront the fact that I helped turn a lot of people into um, celebrities, accidental celebrities, whether they wanted to be or not. And I think that the universal theme that comes through is actually one of control and it's about the wrestle for control over um, their interactions with the media and the public and also then um, how they were portrayed and represented. And that leads to a very interesting discussion um, really about issues like employing agents and checkbook journalism two of the most controversial things that the media likes to talk about, um, especially if they're outing the practice of another. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> is, oh, they've, you know, that person's employed an agent and now this network over here has paid for the exclusive. But what you'll hear from those who have um, employed agents and participated in checkbook journalism, which is, um, you know, specifically um, Lindy, um, James, Stewart and Todd, uh, is that it wasn't, it was never about the money first. They weren't trying to make money out of their own situation. Um, they needed some sense of control mm. over um, the, the pack, the demands that were placed on them, everybody who wanted to talk to them. Um, so getting an agent, hiring somebody, helped them basically keep people at bay. And the, the reason for going into an exclusive arrangement was because instead of having to talk to multiple people and go back over and over and over um, the same issues, they were able to deliver a clear message through one and then everybody else got the message to back off. And that, um, if that entails money, so be it. Um, and none of, them make, none of them make an apology for accepting money. Um, Lindy talks about how sometimes she's, she's done contracts with very, very small amounts of money but it was actually about the control mm. and sometimes the money just gets attached to that's why it's an exclusive. But equally, you know, she said, I've become so well-known now I can't get a job. I haven't been able to get a job. So everybody else has made far more money out of me than what I've ever made out of myself um, from selling a few stories and they all agree with that. Yeah, yeah. The final question I have is... The media has certain rules when it comes to uh, reporting about certain things, like suicide is discussed in, in a way that is designed not to create copycats and not to encourage other people. You generally either say it's a it was a suicide, um, and you don't talk about the method. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, if if it's a famous person and you can't and you can't escape it, then then you will say death by suicide. But if it's a non-famous person, then it's generally uh, there were no suspicious circumstances. It's that that kind of word wording. Anyway, the 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 point is, um, the 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 media has very strict guidelines about this, or at least you know it, it is it has formulated ways of doing this. If you were to create uh, a media handbook today for uh, journalists who are 
reporting on accidental celebrities. How would you structure that that um, playbook? And by the same uh, the same idea, if you were to write a playbook for someone who discovers they have now become an accidental celebrity, what would be some of the key things you would tell them to do um, so that they don't become vilified or that they don't become a saint or that they don't, you know, that, that they can control the way their story is told? Oh, that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, I'm not the font of all wisdom in this um, in this regard. But what You're I would say as far as... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but as I like to say, I'm only qualified to diagnose a bad news story. Um, <laughs> um, I, I would say, look, to the media, um, you really have to keep coming back to the principles of having some empathy and understanding and respect. Um, for the individuals involved and try not to get engaged in the pack mentality um, and the pack pursuit. Um, give people um, some space. Now, everybody wants the, the story, um, but I think uh, you have to come back to saying uh, under what circumstances are they prepared to talk and how can we help facilitate that and give them some level of control over that. Um, you know, there are clearly things that happen that are not uh, ethical, but by and large, most journalists are. They will always get, uh, in any industry, I think, unethical behaviour and we'd be silly if we, we didn't think so. But, you know, when I've done a death knock before, you know, I, I went there, yes, I did, but I also gave the person some space to decide whether they wanted to speak or not and when they said they didn't want to, I left. Uh, I didn't pursue them, try and take photos, do surreptitious things like that. So I think we have to come back to what our own uh, code of uh, conduct says and it's very clear what the um, media code of conduct is in Australia and we should be following what our our code says because it's written by journalists and for a reason to um, control those behaviours. And in terms of the, the people themselves, if I were... You know, I've thought about this, you know, how I wouldn't, after 30 years in the media, I wouldn't be prepared for mm. the sort of situation that these people experienced. And they didn't have the, the knowledge of the media. So I think I would like to echo what James Scott says, who has been through it, and he's a psychiatrist, and he says, if you can avoid the media, try to, but if you... But um, by and large, when it's something like this is going, is going to happen, you're not going to be able to. So give yourself the time and the space to think about how you're going to engage with the media and what you want to say, what your message is. So how you will interact and what your message will be. And if you need to get some advice from somebody else, get some advice um, before you do. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, <laughs> since the, we started recording, I've been trying to figure out what I would do in this situation as well. Um, I, I mean, A, I know I wouldn't be thinking straight, so n- none of what I say today makes any difference anyway. But I would like, I, I think probably the best idea would be to, like you say, um, keep the media at as as far distant as possible, and that does probably mean selling a story as an exclusive, but then making sure that the money goes to a charity or something so that you can never be accused of profiting off your own trauma. I think it's very much, I'd leave it to the individual as to what they would want to do Mm. with the money. I think that that's um, their choice. One thing that I think that the media 
probably could do when it comes to the issue of, of payments is instead of sneering and sniping about somebody paying for a story, you know, there is the potential for the media to just say um, this story was, you know, exclusive payment. But you don't have to say how much is in the contract, mm. but you declare that. And I know that those who miss out will always um, feel aggrieved uh, by it. But we can be upfront. We should just be more upfront about that. Mm. Don't you think that that might stop that sort of debate about, oh, um, are they going to do a financial deal? And when are they going to do a financial deal? And I'd love to believe so, but I just don't, you know, maybe I watched too much Frontline but, um, in my formative yeah. years. But I just kind of feel that, you know, no matter who you decide to go with, then you're just making everyone else decide that you've sold out. Yeah. Unless you, I, I don't know, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe giving like an exclusive to the ABC and then just walking away and asking for, I don't know. Again, the, these are all ho- hypotheticals I hope to never have to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the public broadcasters, you know, don't um, spend money on exclusives. They'll pay expenses for people and things like that, which is another form of payment, but um, they won't pay, you know, shell out cash for an interview. Um, we know that. But let's get back to it. We're all in the pursuit of audiences. Mm. So in getting an exclusive, they're still getting audiences, which then uh, the objective of that is to justify the funding that they get from government. So everybody is just after the audiences and that's why they make a put a, put a value on that mm. exclusive. Was it worth it or not? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have the answer to that other than I came into this being against checkbook journalism for ethical reasons that I felt like um, perhaps it, it encourages people to embellish their story or, um, you know, it's stopping the free flow of information, which is another argument about it, that you're limiting it to one outlet. Uh, journalists, you know, will report on what other, you know, on those exclusives anyway across outlets. And I've come to the conclusion that really from the perspective of these people, um, I'd be doing it, <laughs> and, uh, and it would be, and it would be to, you know, and and they all say I didn't need money to embellish my story. Uh, that's these a specific group of trauma survivors. They um, they don't need money to embellish their story, and they don't embellish their story um, in, in order to get that. Uh, it was very much about control and protection. Completely understandable. Well, um, I can't wait to listen to the series because, yeah, it, it, it ticks all of the boxes of, like, weird niches that I'm, I'm totally into. So uh, thank you so much for making it, Fiona, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Peter. And uh, sorry, just one more time, what is the, uh, the show called and where can people find it? The show is called Accidental Celebrity and it's available on Acast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Amazon or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want a bit more information, you can go to accidentalcelebrity.com.au. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.